Revelation chapter 5. Over the, it's, it's been two weeks since we've gotten into the book of Revelation. We started the, first, or the fifth chapter on the 21st of June, which was Father's Day. And so I'm looking forward to finishing chapter 5 today. And uh, these two chapters, uh, 4 and 5, are really interesting because if you remember when we first started, we looked at the book of Revelation and we covered the seven churches of Revelation. And, and that really covers the church age of which we are still a part. And the church age is something that is happening now and will continue until the rapture of the church. And we talked a lot about that uh, the last several weeks uh, about the church being removed before this period of time. The Bible calls the Great Tribulation. It also calls it Daniel's 70th week or Jacob's Trouble. And it's a time where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, Jesus Christ. See, the thing that we struggle with is that God is a God of love, and he certainly is. But we have to understand that if he is a perfect God of love, it also stands to reason that he must punish sin. Now, aren't you glad that your sin has been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ? That is true, and that is a done deal. He, he did it once and for all, and our faith in him sets the slate clean. If we confess our sin, what does the Bible say, the, pro, the promise? He will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand that. But we also know that God is a God of justice, and that there is coming a time where God will pour out his wrath. And that time is yet future to us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not see God's wrath. Because he already, for you, Christian, he's already taken that wrath out upon his son. But when we are removed from the earth, God is going to deal with the world. He's going to deal with Israel again. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he will pour out his wrath upon a world that has rejected him. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 that God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Many other passages, many other um, areas in the scripture where God always removes his faithful remnant before he brings judgment. That, that's the overall timbre of the, of the entire Bible, redemption. And redemption is more than just being saved from our sins and going to heaven. Redemption is even when God pours out his judgment, he removes his remnant first. What good father, what good bridegroom would allow his bride to be trounced through the muck and the mire and the awful, horrid display of God's wrath on the earth? Does anybody think that that's true, that God would allow such a thing? I don't believe it for a minute, because the Bible is very clear about these things. And in fact, the more you read it, the more you realize that that is the nature of God. That's one thing you can rest in. That's one thing you can take to the bank, and you can rest your head on your pillow at night because he's a good, good father. We sang it, right? And so uh, we looked at the, 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 those letters to the seven churches, and that was basically what was happening on, on the earth at that time. And then chapters 4 and 5, which we're going to finish today, is the scene changes completely, and now we're in heaven, and we see this heavenly vision, if you will, of John being caught up as a representative of the church in the rapture, in a sense, God showing him what the things that are coming after these things. Remember that metatauta? After these things, it says in the first verse of chapter 4 that he rose to heaven,
heaven, and God showed him things yet to come. And he wrote them down for our edification, for our encouragement. And I love the fact that God did that, because we're living in a time of unprecedented evil, unprecedented deception. And I love the fact that God says, you don't need to worry, I've shown you the big picture. Does that give you comfort in your soul? The fact that he shows you the big picture, to me, it does. If he didn't show us anything, I'd be very nervous right now. I'd be very nervous, but he's shown us. So Christian, rest. If you believe in in Jesus, you can rest. You can sit in your hammock with your glass of iced tea on a sunny day when the breeze is flowing about 74 degrees (laughs) under the shade tree of a big oak tree in your backyard You can rest, Christian. Rest from your fears of the future. God's got a hold of this. He's got a handle on everything. He knows exactly what's happening, and everything is going right along his timetable. We don't like it, and I don't like it, to be honest with you. We're not supposed to like it. If we have the very nature of Jesus within us, we, like he, hate sin. We hate evil. We hate things going the way they're going and the things that we're seeing, and that's very natural. It's very normal. But what do you do with that? What do you do with that maybe angst or maybe even fear? What do you do with that? I would encourage you to take it to your, take it to your knees And bring it before the Lord and trust him. Trust him and rest in him. There's no greater place to be than at the feet of Jesus. Just like Mary. Remember Mary and Martha? Oh, Martha, you've encumbered by many things, but Mary has done that thing which is needful. Needful. And that's what we need to do. I'd encourage you more than watching the news, more than being caught up on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, spend more time in the word of God. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time going for walks with your family. Spend more time being with those that you love. Play Monopoly like we did yesterday. Spend time together. We've learned some lessons from this whole thing, haven't we? We're going through. But this vision now in chapter 4 and 5 is completely in heaven. It's about the heavenly scene after the church is removed from the earth. And what, is, what do we see there? We see the throne, and we see those four living creatures. We see the 24 elders surrounding this throne. We see this heavenly scene that is painted for us in the first chapter, and certainly in chapters 4 and 5. We see who is there, and we see worship, and they're worshiping one. You know, it's an interesting thing that God is on the throne. God the Father, you cannot see God the Father. He is a spirit. No one has seen God and lived. No one has seen him in his essence as a spirit and lived. But yet, people seen Jesus Christ on the earth, didn't they? And yet, who is the one? God the Father is so secure in himself. He has given all power and all authority to his son. And as we look at this scene this morning, we're going to see Jesus being at the center, this lamb as it was slain, being in the center of it all. And God the Father not having a problem with it at all because he is equal with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. We can't completely understand it, but three persons in the Godhead. It's one God, but three persons. And so we see this scene of them exalting Jesus Christ. And you know, the title of this morning's message is Worthy is the Lamb. 
Worthy is the lamb. You know, it's been said that if you look at a person's life long enough, you can tell really what they hold as valuable, what they deem as worthy. Just watch them. Watch the things that they say. Watch the things that they buy. What do they spend more time talking about? You can find and you can discern what is really valuable to someone. What is worthy? What is worthy? And yet, Worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Worthy is He. Jesus Christ is worthy. You know, it's interesting, in the New Oxford American Dictionary, it has this definition of worthy. It literally means having or showing the qualities or abilities that merit recognition in a a specified way. It's deserving effort, attention, or respect. And what are some of the things that our culture holds or values or calls worthy? And the answer to that question says a lot about us as a people, as a culture, doesn't it? What are some of the things that are valued or deemed worthy in our culture? You know, I think if we, not necessarily us in this room, but if you did a, if you looked over it with a, with a broad paintbrush, the United States of America, what would they think is most valuable? The real truth, not what they say so much, but by where they spend most of their time, they spend most of their money, their attention. What is it? It's actors, famous actors, famous actresses, rock stars, sports celebrities, the rich and the famous, those who are gifted. You know, we tend to value uh, those things. We deem worthy those who are physically attractive. I'm just being honest. In, In our culture, that's what it is. This is what they find worthy. They look at the outward attraction. They look at the physical beauty. They value those who are talented or gifted in any subject, any vocation. They value those who are well-educated and those certainly that are wealthy. And all of these things, they are gifts from God. They are either gifts that God has given or that he's allowed by his grace. I can't, you know, when I was born, I wasn't able to determine whether I'd be a physically attractive person or not. You know, I, I didn't have control over that. Unless you live in Hollywood. <laughs> then you can go to a doctor and you can get attractive. But that's not really attractive, is it? But see, we can't even boast in those things. So what do we hold worthy? What do we deem valuable? We cannot boast even in the things that we have been given. You know, I love what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul said to them, For who makes you differ from one another, and what do you have that you did not first receive? Now, if you, you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And yet that is exactly what we as a culture do. We boast in those things. More often than not, these things are, are, are boasted about. But the Bible says, worthy is the lamb. And the word worthy in the original Greek, it's a wonderful word. It means basically the same, deserving. It means someone who is deserving, someone who has due reward, one who has merited something. And we see it four times in this chapter alone. We see it in the very second verse of Revelation 5, verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? In the fifth chapter, in the fourth verse, it says, John says, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. In Revelation 5, verse 9, which we're going to look at today, and they sang a new song, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And certainly in the 12th verse, the angels, the living creatures, 
And the elders all sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every tribe and tongue and nation of people See, when we compare what we see on this earth with our own eyes, and then we consider the one who has created all things, the only one who can take the punishment and redeem us, anything else, everything else is very short in comparison. There is no one like Jesus. We sang it this morning. There is none like you. There is truly none like him. Everybody smile. There's none like him. Your faith is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. You serve the living Christ, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the one who is the subject of revelation. Let's read through the first seven verses quickly, and then we're going to get into verses 8 through 14. Notice it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And notice, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John says, I wept much. He convulsively wept. This wasn't a tear in the eye. No, this was a very remorseful cry. He wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But notice verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. This is the only place in Revelation where Jesus is spoken of as a lamb. The only place, or I'm sorry, as a lion, spoken of as a lion, excuse me. (laughs) The only place, let me repeat that again, we'll edit that, no, just kidding. The only place in Revelation where Jesus is spoken of as a lion, and it all goes back to Genesis 49. Remember when Jacob was blessing his sons. He was prophesying over them right before he passed from the scene in Egypt. You remember what he said to to Judah? He said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And there's more to that. You can read verses 9 through 11, but basically it speaks of Judah being uh, like a lion. And certainly, who came from the line of Judah? Certainly it was David, and, and, and David, who, who ultimately came? Jesus Christ. He came through the line of Judah. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I love what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. It even talks of Solomon's throne room. In Solomon's throne room, there were, there, were, um, there were six steps ascending up to his throne. On each side of those six steps were lions. Lions. Symbolizing Judah. Symbolizing the lion of the tribe of Judah. Ultimately, finding its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. But notice that it says he was not only the lion of the tribe of Judah who was able to open the scroll, but he was also the root of David. A root speaks of something that's the beginning. It speaks as, uh, like a, well, for those of you who garden, you know that the, you know, there, there's, a, there's a root. You put a, a, something in the ground and it grows. And when you cut it, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a stump there. And what does it say in Isaiah 11? It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. David's father was named Jesse. And remember, Isaiah is speaking 700 years prior to Jesse even being born, at least. 
And he says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem, from the root of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What is that speaking of? Whom is that speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? At the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And that's what we're doing today. That's what we've been doing, is been testifying these things to the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Going on in verse 6, it says, And I look, John says, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You know, when you look at this word midst, it literally means in the middle. In the middle of this heavenly scene. Who is there? Jesus. He is the center He had to be the center of everything in our lives. When Jesus is the center of your life, what is there? There is peace, isn't there? It doesn't mean that it's not going to be without troubles, but you're going to have a peace, an inward peace that nobody can understand. While the world is falling apart all around you, you can be there with that silly smile on your face and people look at you like a cat testing new eyes. What? Why aren't you devastated? You just lost your job. You just lost your Bugatti in a crash. How can you smile? And yet we can, because he is the center. So in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, Jesus is and should be preeminent in all things. You know, and there's something about the name of Jesus that provokes a response. You know it, because when you mention his name, things change. When you, mention some, when you mention the name of Jesus, that name has power. There's no name like it in all the universe. You can say Buddha. You can say Allah. You can say anything. But boy, once you say Jesus, boy, the demons start to shriek. And you know that because people, even in their own flesh, they start to get really uncomfortable. Because why? Because they're controlled by the Spirit of God? No, because they are controlled by the enemy of their souls. They may not be demon-possessed, but I can tell you, when you mention the name of Jesus to a person who does not have the Spirit of God in them, there is immediate conviction. And it provokes a response. They'll either be reverent or they will be blasphemous. There's very little in between. But there is power in his name. What does it say in Colossians 1? This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. Chuck Smith was not the head of the church. Billy Graham was not the head of the church. No one is the head of the church except for Jesus Christ. It says it right here. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, what? He might have what? The preeminence. The preeminence. He is to be the center. And he is, even in this heavenly vision that we're seeing here, that is real, by the way. Did you know that what we're reading here is not just some kind of allegory? No, this is the reality of heaven When you die, Christian, you are going to see this place until God raptures your body and your body is reunited with a new body or your spirit and your soul is reunited. You are going to see this place and we will see this place for at least seven years. 
So get used to this scene because you're going to see it. And it'll probably seem like a moment, honestly, because a thousand years is like one day and one day is, is a thousand years. So we could be up there and have a marriage supper of the lamb and seven years could be finished and then it's time to go back to earth. And we come back with him in his glorious second coming. But get used to this scene. Read it. Be encouraged by it. So, and notice that it says in verse 6 there that it was a lamb as though it had been slain. And to the Jews, to the Jewish people, they would see this and it would immediately bring upon them the idea of the Passover lamb that was recorded for us in Exodus 12. Remember when God brought them out of Egypt, he told them to sacrifice a lamb that night. And anyone who was in the house where the blood was put on the lintel and the side, side posts of the door, anybody who was inside would be spared. They would be saved. But anyone outside Side, any of the firstborn will be killed. And so obedience, again, right? So a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he will bear the scars that he incurred on the earth for eternity. We will see those wounds in his hands for eternity. Can you imagine that? A million years goes by in his presence, and we'll stand there, and we'll look at him. And he'll raise his hands, and we'll still see the the scars in here will see, still see the scar in his side and his feet, and it'll be a re- reminder. At that point, it won't be remorseful, but we'll, we'll be in gratitude. We will look at him and we'll say, Lord, if it hadn't been for you, I'd be in hell. It's a good thing to be afraid of hell. I was afraid of hell, and you know, fear of hell brought me to Christ. <laughs> Don't ever be afraid to talk to people about hell because hell is real. And no one spoke about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. You can look at it yourself. He spoke about hell quite a bit. An eternal judgment. It is real. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that what it says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9? It is not his will that any should perish. Actually, it's a wrong verse, but you get my point. It's not his will that any should perish, but whereas a lion speaks of strength, you know, when it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah, it speaks of strength and power. And a lamb, what does it speak of? It speaks of meekness. His first advent when he came, he came as a lamb, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But folks, do you know that he's coming? And when he comes, he's not going to come back as a lamb. He's going to come back as a lion. And he's going to exact vengeance upon this earth hopefully upon none of our relatives. That's why it's important for us to share the truth of the gospel. The gospel saves. Don't ever remove the teeth from the gospel. And the teeth of the gospel is that if I don't repent, I will go to hell. Nobody likes to talk about that. Many churches today aren't talking about that. But it is the truth, and it must happen. And it must, God wants to use you he wants to use you and I to share that word. And notice this lamb had seven horns. Horns in the scripture speaks of strength. It speaks of, uh, of, of power. Notice that there are seven of them. And we know the number of seven speaks of completeness. It speaks of uh, perfection. And it speaks of Jesus' omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. It's the one, one of the three things that God alone has. He is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, and he is omniscient. He's all-powerful, he's in all places at once, 
and he sees all things. He knows your thoughts. He knows your very hairs of your head. They are all numbered. When one of them falls, he could actually give you the number if he so chose. <laughs> he says your hairs on your head are numbered. Does that sound like somebody who cares about you or someone's just like, ah, you're just a number? Right? The world treats you like a number, but there's only one who treats you like a son, like a daughter, who treats you some even more intimate than that. He treats you like the apple of his eye. He treats you like a special, redeemed person that you are. That ought to put a smile on your heart, regardless of what anybody has said about you. Have you had people telling you all your life, well, you're not good enough, you, you, you don't cut it. You, got, you, you work at this company for so many years, for 30 or 40 years, and they come to you one day and say, you know what, you're just old. Here's your pin. Here's your severance. Oh, sorry, we don't do that anymore. Here's your pension. Oop, sorry, we don't do that anymore either. You're not really valuable to us, but no, the Son of God values you so much. Do you know he values you? I love that. You are loved, folks. Isn't that wonderful? Let him wrap his arms around you. But he's all-powerful, right? What does it say in Romans 13? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, there's no power except from God. And the authorities that exist, the powers that be, are appointed, they're ordered by God. He alone has power. He alone is worthy. He's omnipotent. And these seven eyes of the Lamb speak of his omniscience. He knows all things. He can't learn anything because he knows everything. I love Psalm 139. It's another one of my favorite psalms. Read it because it speaks of this omniscience and this omnipotence, an omnipresence of God. Wonderful three characteristics. No one has those characteristics. Satan is not like God. He is not Jesus' brother, as the Mormons believe. He is a created being, folks. That means he can only be in one place at one time. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He knows the past really well. You and I don't know very much, but he's a genius. He knows the past really well, and he only knows enough of the future, what God allows him to, and how frustrating that must be for him. God is all-powerful. You don't need to fear the devil. You don't need to fear evil. Right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with me. So Jesus, this, it says in verse 7, then, the, then he, the lamb, came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him, God the Father, who sat on the throne. And this is the great judge, God the Father, giving Christ the verdict for the punishment due to those on the earth who have rejected his only means of salvation. Jesus alone is the mediator between God and man. And that word literally means someone who is an internunciator, someone who is a reconciler. He reconciles us to God. That's what Jesus is, and that's what he does. He's a reconciler. He is a mediator. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews nine fifteen, what does it say? And for this reason, Jesus, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And because Jesus is the mediator by means of death he also has the right to judge he has the right to judge 
Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not speak, I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. And he would say also in John, in chapter 8, verse 15, speaking to the Pharisees, he said, you judge according to the flesh, but I judge no man on the earth at that time. He didn't. And yet I do judge. And yet, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. And so finally we get into verse 8 of this chapter. And verse 8 really is, eight from 8 to the end, is really the answer to the question that was posed in verse 2. Look at verse 2 with me again in chapter 5, verse 2. What is the question that was posed? Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Well, here is the answer. Here is the answer. Beginning in verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, notice, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls or vials in the King James Version, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. These golden bowls full of incense. This is symbolic of prayer, isn't it? David in Psalm 141 said this, uh, verse 1 and 2, he says, I cry out to you, Lord, make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We know that in the Old Testament, that's exactly what they did. The priest twice daily would come into the temple. They would offer incense on that table that was right before the Holy of Holies. Remember, as you walk into the temple, immediately to your left would be the lampstand. Right immediately in front of you would be the table of incense, where they would burn the incense. On the right side would be the table of showbread. And then behind that table of incense would be a curtain, and behind that would be the Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim pointing their, their wings down, looking downward on the mercy seat, where once a year... The high priest would come and sprinkle blood for the atonement for the entire country, for all of Israel. But the altar of incense, it speaks of prayer. And every pray, every prayer that you pray is not only heard by God, but is also held safely and securely in escrow. Isn't that wonderful? Because what does it say here? That they each had a harp and they each had golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. God doesn't dismiss any of your prayers. Think of the prayers that people have prayed. You prayed them and you thought maybe God wasn't listening because of your own emotions. God will never hear that. God will never hear that prayer. I feel like a wreck. I'm a wreck inside. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm worthy. Is anyone worthy? There's only one who's worthy. But because you are in him, God looks upon you and says, now you are worthy. You are worthy in Christ. You are valuable to him. So every prayer that you pray is valuable. And they are represented here. So then how important is our prayer life? I would encourage you to join us on our prayer meetings. Before the services, if we can, let's meet in the prayer room. Let's be a praying people. And by all means, when you're by yourself at home, please pray. It's the greatest thing we could do is to pray. But 
But prayer is a two-way communication, isn't it? And our part, you know, we understand our part because we can bring our lists, we can bring those things before him. We understand our part of it. But then we wonder, well, how does God speak to me? How can I know that he's speaking back to me? Well, let me tell you, sometimes God will just speak to you through his word. He speaks to you primarily through his word. He can speak to you in that still small voice in your heart. When you don't know, when you're having a question, when you're at a crisis moment, Lord, what do I do? And you got this funny little urge to just do this. And then you do it and you find it was the right thing. That was the Lord. He also can answer our prayers in circumstances that are in our lives. When you pray about something and it comes to pass, you're like, God, you were listening. Had so many times like that. There's no coincidences in any of this. And you all know it because I hear your stories too. The things that God has done. He does it through dreams and visions. We've got to be careful there though. But God can reveal himself. He can answer prayer. He can show us things to come. And he certainly can do it through other people. But prayer is worship. Because when we pray, we are seeking the only one who is able to bring about change. We are praying and we are proving by relying on him that he is superior and all-powerful. And do this, do you understand that we honor God when we do that? We honor him. And make no mistake, when God wants to speak to you, he doesn't have a hard time doing it. He is the great communicator, regardless of where you're at spiritually, regardless of what you feel like. There have been moments in my life, and I can count them on probably three fingers, where God has spoken to me so clearly, it literally was audible to me. There were watershed moments in my life where I literally heard a voice. And he doesn't do that to everybody, maybe because I'm a thick-headed you know, bonehead, I don't know. He spoke to me, and it was so clear to me. It doesn't happen very often like that. He speaks in other ways, but I think sometimes when he's like, you know what, you need a little help, Rob. Because I, I know you're not thinking that you're anywhere. I, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling, and you're kind of aloof. So I'm just going to speak a word. I'm going to get you back on track. And he can do that, and he does that. But notice in verse 9 through 10 below, we're going to see these doxologies. A doxology is nothing more than just an expression of praise, of worship. And we're going to see three of them here in the passage that we have before us today. Notice in verse 9, And they, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they sang a new song, and they said, What? You are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy, Lamb of God, to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain. Notice past tense. And you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. These 24 elders are representatives of the body of Christ, of the church. We know that they are not angels because uh, in, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, what does it say? And this is the way we need to read the Bible. I would encourage you, when you read the Bible, read it like this, because there are some who think, well, these are just angels, but they're not angels. And why do I know that? There's two passages, uh, Revelation 5.11 and 7.11. That's one way to remember them. 5.11, what does it say? Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. There's a distinction between angels and elders and these four living creatures. In Revelation 7.11, it says the same thing. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures. Do you get the point? If there's a distinction like that, otherwise they would just be all angels. 
He would have just said the angels and the four living creatures. See, this is the way you can read the Bible. You can read it like that. You can read it very carefully, and it'll give you the answers. I love that. And notice, they sang a new song, and I love this idea of a new song. And even when a song is not new, it can be new to you every single time you hear it, because your heart is renewed. See, you know, you can sing the same song over and over and over again, and if your heart is right, you can still worship the Lord. Someone who is still growing in their worship gets tired of the same song, but a real saint of God can say, you know what, I can sing how great thou art, I don't care how many times, and I can still think about it, and I can still magnify my creator, Jesus, through that song. So don't grow tired of older songs and things we've done. It's good to do a new song. Sometimes the old song, we can sing a new song with an old song. Does that make sense? Because our hearts can be changed and we can draw near to him. So don't allow your worship of God to be stale and stagnant. Even if you know the words in your sleep. Praise the Lord, you don't have to look at the screen. Close your eyes and worship. <laughs> right? Psalm, 3, Psalm 33 says, David says, Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with it and shout for joy. Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. I love that. And notice in verse 9 again, You are worthy to take the scroll. You know, as, you, as we look at these three uh, doxologies, these three exclamations uh, of, of praise that we're going to see in this chapter, the first one is in, in, in verses 8 through 10, and it's referring to the four living creatures and the 24 elders. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to see another group, the angels offering worship to God. And finally, in verse 13 through 14, we're going to see all the heavenly hosts and also everyone on the earth, under the earth, and in the seas worshiping God. Do you see what's happening? It's like a concentric circle. Jesus is in the center. And then you have the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures around him singing. And then around them, you've got this multitude, this myriad of angels singing. An innumerable number, 100 million at least, and then, on the outside of that, you've got all of creation worshiping, and all of it's pointing toward, toward, toward the center. Who is the center? It's Jesus Christ. He is the center. Is he worthy of giving your life to him? Is he worthy? He gave his life for you. He gave up so much. And we will see him for eternity. He gave up everything for you. Are you willing to give up your life for him? He may not call you to give up your physical life, but are you willing to give your attention, your life to him? Believe me, anybody who does will never be ashamed. They will never regret it. There's always regrets on the deathbeds. Do you ever notice that? When you get to somebody in their deathbed and they're, they're dying their last breath and they got tubes sticking out of them and they're all pale. I wish I would have. I wish I would have. <coughs> I wish I would have given more. I wish I would have loved more. Daughter, I wish I would have done more for you. I wish I would have said I loved you more. Wife, I wish I would have told you how much I valued you, how much I adore you. Son, I wish I would have played more with you. I wish I would have played ball with you. I wish I would have went to more of your games. Live a life with no regrets and live a life sold out to Christ. You will never ever regret it, no matter what. No matter what. You will never regret it, but you will regret it when you 
uh, you know, at the end. You know, because even if you're a Christian and you've been lazy, and even if you're a Christian and you've been kind of like just checking out and doing your own thing, believe me, there's coming a time when we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know that this is not about heaven or hell, okay? This is about believers being given rewards for what they've done in the body since they've been saved. And you're going to see people receiving awards. And maybe you'll receive some too. And others are going to get rewards, rewards, and rewards. And then it's going to matter to you. If it doesn't matter to you right now, check your heart. Say, Lord, what's wrong with me that this doesn't really bother me? I got my fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. That's all I care about. Really? Is that all that matters? What about the here and now? What about a life being blessed now? If it was just about going to heaven, I mean, everybody would be giving their heart to Christ and then living like the devil. <laughs> it makes no sense. If you've got the hope of glory and you're going to be going to heaven, why not live like it now? Why not live with him in your heart now? Why wait? <laughs> you may not have an opportunity. There are many saints over history that have given their literally their lives and their and their their life to Christ. Polycarp was one of those men. He was the bishop of Smyrna. You remember we read about him when we were looking at the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2, but Polycarp was burned at the stake alive. And then when the fire wouldn't consume his body, the Jews of that town, they took out knives and they stabbed him to death. Because he wouldn't die. It wasn't happening quick enough to slake their thirsty lust for his death. But he gave his life. And God may not cause you to give your life physically. But what are you doing with the rest of your life? In Acts 20, I love what Paul said. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles before the Pharisees, after they were beaten, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing what? That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Notice why Jesus was worthy in this chapter, in this verse 9. He was worthy because of what? He was slain. And that's the reason. You are worthy to open the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain and also that you have redeemed us to God the Father by your blood. That is the reason. Jesus died once and for all. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Romans 6, verse 10 says, For the death that he died, Jesus, he died to sin once and for all. But that he lives, he lives to God. Do you love that? I love that. But you were redeemed. And you've redeemed us, these these living creatures and, the, and these 24 elders says. You have redeemed us. You were bought with a price. It says in 1 Peter that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. That's chapter 1, verse 18, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's what you were redeemed with. And Peter goes on in chapter 2, verse 9, and says that you are a chosen generation. You, all of us, were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. It literally means his own purchased people. You've been bought. 
Does that bother you? Depends on who bought you. You've been bought. I'm so glad that I've been bought with the one who saved my soul. The one who loves me, the one who loves you, is very careful, he's very nurturing, he's very gentle, he's very loving. So glad that I belong to Jesus. Are you glad that you belong to Jesus this morning? He has purchased you and have made us kings and priests to our God. And notice, and we shall reign on the earth. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, this is Matthew 19, verse 28. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, disciples, that in the regeneration, again, Jesus speaking to his disciples, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, we're talking about the millennial reign here, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They have a specific purpose. They're going to be kings and priests. God has created a kingdom and priests. And every one of us, beloved believers, every one of us are going to be a priest in the Lord in the millennial reign. I love what it says in Revelation chapter 1. John is greeting uh, the seven, he says, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he goes down, but then he says, and, and, and he's telling who the letter is from. He says, it's from the seven spirits of God. It's from John, me, but from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And notice verse six, and has made us kings and priests to his God and father. To him be glory and dominion forever. And ultimately, in Revelation 20, what does it say to us? In verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads. And we're going to look at all of these things as we go through the book of Revelation. It's going to be a fascinating time. And 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 a very timely message for us, a timely chapter, a timely book for us to be in as we see the things going around. Does anybody feel it? <laughs> you can actually feel it in the air. <laughs> There's something happening. Does anybody, is anybody awake? Can you, you attest to that? There's something happening. Things are moving in the direction that this is telling us about. It's forewarning, telling us in advance. Don't worry, Christian. You may not like it. I don't like it either. But can we be joyful? Can we be resting in him nonetheless? Absolutely. We don't have to lose our minds. But notice, in Revelation, again, it says, and they lived and they reigned with Christ for what? A thousand years? Absolutely. A thousand years. In the Greek, it means a thousand years. <laughs> right? There's no way you can sneak in any other thing. It's a thousand years. Everybody say it. A thousand years. Amen? All right, let's go home. A thousand years, but the rest of the, and then it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, which we will. Over such, the second death has no power. Notice, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. What? Again? Yes. A thousand years. And then I look, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. 
They were around the throne, around the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. The word in the Greek here is interesting. It's myriads, which where we get the word myriad from, it's an innumerable amount. But if you were to do the math, it'd be 100 million. But it's more than that. It's, it's, an, it's an amount that we can't even comprehend. And I'm glad about that. And all those in the church who are raptured, we will see this throne room. We will see this scene with our very own eyes, with redeemed bodies in heaven, while we wait for God to pour out his wrath on a world. We are going to see what we're reading about. Does that excite you? And if it doesn't, it's okay, I guess, because you know what? In this flesh, is there anything in our flesh that really desires God? Honestly? No. In this flesh, very little. Only what the Spirit of God does in me do I have any desire at all. Left to myself, I would just be drunk on a beach somewhere in Fuji. That's my flesh, but God, right? But God. We will see this. Notice verse 12. And this, now the heavenly choir alone is singing this praise, this doxology saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and honor and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. All of these seven qualities that are listed here are at least those characteristics of what Jesus will receive. They are the things who Jesus is. He is the embodiment of all power, of all riches, of wisdom, strength. He is all those things. He is all those things. And then in verse 13, now we got the heavenly choir and notice those on the earth, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, they will sing praise to God the Father and the Lamb Jesus Christ. Notice verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven, under the earth, and such, I'm sorry, every, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And this phrase, heaven and on the earth and under the earth, although it speaks of three different places, it's really just speaking of the universality, universe, universe is that a word? Universality, universe, universe, whatever. Universal. It is. It's a, it's a new word. <laughs> the universal nature, there we go, of, of that, of, of the worship that's going to happen. There's no place where it's not, even those in the sea. Can you imagine if scientists were able to find out that creatures, birds, you know, when you think about what a bird does, those beautiful creatures that fly and land in your uh, little thing in the backyard with the water and they twitter around and they... It's like, what are they saying? Are they communicating with one another? I believe they are. Are they worshiping God? They might, in, in, their, in their little minds, who knows what language they're speaking, what, how they're giving thanks for life. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The creatures in the sea and whatever intelligence they have, do they, are they cognizant of a creator? How would we know? unless God told us. Then the four living creatures, verse 14, said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down, and they worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Heaven is real, folks, and there is 
And this is where we are going to be. We're going to spend some time in this place. And this is sort of like, the, the, as we end chapter 5 here, this is like the calm before the storm. And I'm so glad that God put these two chapters here, 4 and 5. We're getting ready. When chapter 6 starts, things change. After the church is removed, can you see what would happen if we, when we are removed... Do you know that you are, the, uh, in Thessalonians it says, only he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the brightness of his coming. Who is that thing that restrains? It's you and I, the Spirit of God within the church of Jesus Christ. When we are removed, trust me, there's going to be no resistance. No resistance There'll be nobody standing at town hall saying, this is not right. We cannot do this. It is not right to, to defund the police. It is not right to, for, to abort babies after they've been born. These things are not right. We will be removed and they will say, let's do it. And nobody will be in their way. They will do what they want and they will get what they deserve. Do you know the angels even said that? As God is pouring out his wrath, he says, worthy and just. They are worthy for what's happening, Lord. The inhabitants of the, of the world are worthy for the judgment. That's really hard, isn't it? That's a part of God that I don't know very well. It's not a part of God that I even like, but it nonetheless is a part of who God is. Because he's a God of love, but he's a God of justice. We make the decision. What choice will you make today? Keep a light touch on the things of the world, Christian. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24? Do, not, do, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run. Not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul is speaking about running the race of faith. Are you running the race of faith today? Or are you just kind of resting on your laurels? Are you resting on your lees? Folks, we have to get up out of our seats, out of our chairs, and we have to start being vocal again about Christ. We cannot allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep any longer. Now is the time that we have to rise up in love and in grace. We have to rise up and not allow the flesh to come in and the fear and all of this stuff to keep us silent. No, quite the opposite. We need to wake up, all of us, myself included, we need to wake up and what does John say in his epistle? And we'll end here. This is not an easy thing. He says, do not love the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Does that mean that you can't love your, your car, your house? Well, it depends on what do you mean by loving your house. If you love it so much that you'll do anything for it, there's a problem. If you love it because you're thankful, that's okay. 
but you know the difference between loving it and loving your wife and your family and loving God. You would gladly give up all that stuff for your wife, for your daughter. And certainly you'd be willing to give up everything else, including your own life, for him. We know there's a difference, and you know the difference. But for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. Do you realize that? It's passing away. There's coming a time after the thousand years. Do you see the time frame here? When the church is removed, seven years of judgment, Christ comes back with us to the earth. The millennial reign starts. A thousand years commences. At the end of that thousand years, what does the Bible tell us in Revelation 21 and 22? This current earth, these stars and moons, everything, dissolved in fervent heat. A new heaven and a new earth. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven on the earth. And that is where we will spend eternity. And that is it. In a nutshell. The world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will, notice, he who hears the will of God will abide forever. No, he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you want to be a doer of the word? Do you want to hear those things? and appropriate them in your own life, put feet on those things. That's why we have to stand up. And let's do that. Let's stand together. Let's all jog in place. No, just kidding. Let's run the race. Let's run the race. It is a glorious race. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you're slow. It doesn't matter if you're crawling. It doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter if you've got one leg or one arm. You run the race. And everyone in Christ is going to get across that finish line. God will be sure of it, that you will get across that finish line. Regardless of how you feel. Regardless of your imperfections. If you're in Christ, you are going to get across the finish line. You may be the last guy. <laughs> Can you imagine? Seeing some guy in a wheelchair who's got one arm. He doesn't have any legs, and he's just pushing that thing, and everybody, all the church is waiting for him at the finish line. And they're rooting him on. You're going to make it. And he does. How cool is that? Amen? Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, as we... As we've looked at your word this morning, Lord, we look forward, uh, even though it's going to be uh, interesting, it's going to be challenging, Lord, for what's coming next as we look at Revelation 6 and onward, God. Not a popular passage, not a popular section in the Bible, but nonetheless important, Father. And so, Lord, help us to keep all these things in perspective. Help us to run the race and help us to endure, to abide in you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And everyone said... Amen.